So, Scripture this morning, uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through the end of that chapter, 38. 27 through 38. Now, you can follow along on the screen behind me or however you've got it in front of you uh, before we read. Let's pray again. God, thank you again for, for this book. I thank you for the words that we're about to read, the story that we're about to live into, and uh, we ask that you would speak again, and that through your word, which we know is, is generative, it is transformative, it creates things, Ask that you would create something new in us, that you would generate something new in us, that you would transform us so that we look more like Jesus. Amen. So Mark 8, 27 through the end of the chapter. Jesus and his disciples uh, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Uh, on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus had to be thinking, yeah, you're kind of on the right track. I don't mind that. I like it. But, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it? for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Ooh, we'll go that far. I like this story a lot, by the way. Um, in a lot of ways, it's one of, I think, it's probably because it comes right in the middle. Uh, so Mark has 16 chapters. This is chapter 8, so we're in the middle. And I think it's one of the most important because, well, it's all important, let's be honest. But this is like one of the most important things because it sort of gives perspective uh, on all the things that happened before and all of the things that are yet to come in the story that Mark tells about Jesus. 
And in a lot of ways, the things that we're going to talk about this morning uh, are some of the most important things, I think, that we can talk about as followers of Jesus, as, as Jesus people. Like, we have to get this thing. We have to understand this. And I realize that I'm like raising the bar for what I'm about to say. Like, this is one of the most important things. Uh, so I realized we might fall flat on our face this morning. That's fine. Whatever. But we'll be fine. But literally, this is one of the most important things, I think. Like, Jesus spoke plainly about it. He wanted to make sure. Y'all need to know this. You got to understand this. You cannot miss this. So here's the deal. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, uh, which I think is a very important season. Uh, Maybe the most important season. Everything I say this morning is the most important thing. Um, So a long time ago, the, the church... Uh, created this whole entire season for, for Jesus' people. And uh, in all of their wisdom, they created this season because we need this season badly. And they named it Lent. Lent, of course, comes from the old English word Lenten, which means spring. And so uh, this is something you probably already know, but Lent is, uh, is observed and celebrated during the springtime. And it's leading up to the celebration of the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, Good Friday and Easter. Now, during Lent, you can think about this season as a season of preparation, like we're getting ready. Because you don't just jump into Good Friday. You don't just jump into Easter. You don't just celebrate those things or walk through those things willy-nilly. You need to prepare yourself. You need to be ready for it. This is the season traditionally of of self-examination. This is the season where we look deep inside of our own hearts. This is the season where we look in our own souls and we're very honest about who we are and what's going on and what we're doing and where we're going. This is the season where we ask ourselves very important questions, questions like these. Do we really want to follow Jesus? Are we up for this? Especially since we know where it goes. Like, we know that Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he dies there. He gets murdered. He's crucified. They hang him on a cross. Are we ready for this? Do we really want to go there? What does it mean to follow Jesus anyway? What am I willing to give up? What am I willing to go through? Do I really want to follow Jesus? This is the season where we ask those questions and we're very honest about it. And we try to understand to the best of our ability what it means to actually follow Jesus. And this story that we just read is one of the typical stories that we read and talk about when we begin this season of preparation of self-examination, of self-reflection, of asking these important questions. And we're going to jump right into this story after we talk about the algorithm. When I talk about the algorithm, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I talk about it, the algorithm, but really there are lots of different algorithms. It's the thing behind the thing when we're scrolling through social media, right? It's because they're watching you and they're watching me. It's the algorithm. Are you familiar with this? this? This term. Like, it's the thing that's behind the thing when we're scrolling through Facebook, when we're scrolling through Twitter and Instagram and things like, like TikTok and even Spotify and whenever we're on the World Wide Web on the internet. Whenever. 
Like YouTube is really notorious for its algorithm, right? So let's just talk about the algorithm and what it does and what it's about because I think it's super interesting, right? The algorithm is basically this. Like you click on a certain thing. Let's say you're on YouTube because that's the one that everyone talks about. So you click on a video on YouTube and you're watching it and what does it do? If you're, on a, if you're on a laptop or a larger screen, on the right-hand side, uh, it, it comes up and spits out all sorts of suggestions of things that, that you might like that are most likely related to the thing that you're, that you're watching. Are you familiar with this, right? And it doesn't just know what you like. It doesn't just think it knows. It knows what you like. So it spits out all of these things that are related to that thing, and sometimes it can be very helpful because, because it can sort of point you in the right direction of the thing that you're wanting to learn about, right? And it's very helpful. And other times it can be actually dangerous. This is how, this is how people get sucked into like conspiracy theories, and you click, and you click, and you click, and you get, and it changes you, it transforms you, and pretty soon you don't even know what's happening. You're just a different person because you spent half your day clicking through all the things on there, right? It's like sugar. You eat a little bit of sugar and your body and your brain says to you, you have to have more of that because it's so good. Or it's like, it's like, this is too easy. It's like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. Again, it's too easy. It's like Lay's potato chips. I bet you can't eat just one, right? Or it's like Doritos. There's no jingle there. It's like you open a bag of Doritos and you have to eat half of it because it's so good. You have to eat half. These things are scientifically engineered so that you will just keep eating and keep eating and keep eating because it's so good. Your body and your brain are like more, more, more. The algorithm's like that, right? And sometimes it's helpful because it... it uh, it, and people like it because it points you in the right direction. But now people are beginning to question whether or not this is actually a good thing for us. They're questioning whether or not the algorithm just narrows things down too much and winds up making us narrow-minded. And they're starting to ask questions. What if there's this thing over here that isn't at all related to what I'm into right now? that might be interesting to me. Like, what if there's this thing over here that won't pop up on the algorithm, but, but it might actually be informative for me? What if there's this other perspective way over there that I might not otherwise ever come across if I just follow the algorithm? What if this is making me too narrow-minded? And people are liking, people are thinking, I don't like this, I don't want this. So they're beginning to fight against it and speak out against it. So at this point in our story, Jesus is doing his thing in and around Galilee and, and the followers of Jesus have been following around for, for like three years, the better part of three years or so. And, and they've seen some really incredible things. You can think of it like this. Jesus is following the algorithm. Like he wants them in. He's hooked them. Like they're there. And this is only part of Jesus' story. 
I mean, you recognize that we're only eight chapters in, and this has been like three years. There are a whole bunch of things that these people saw and experienced that aren't recorded here because, well, parchment's expensive, and it takes a lot of time to write it down, right? So there's lots of other things. But here are some of the things that the disciples saw and experienced with their own eyes, right? Here's some of them, right? Jesus calming the wind and the waves with just on the Sea of Galilee with just three little words, quiet, be still, click. I want to watch that. Right? Jesus feeding like ten to 15,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch, just five loaves of bread and two fish, click. I want to watch that. Jesus walking on water, click. Jesus healing a man who, can know, who can't see or heal, click. I want to watch that. Jesus, bringing a, bringing a little girl back from death to life, click. I want some of that. Give me some of that. Jesus spitting on his hands, on his fingers, and rubbing them on his, this person's eyes and giving him 20-20 vision again, click. I want to watch that. Give me some more of that. The algorithm at this point is absolutely working. It's fantastic. And he's even gathering a whole crowd of people around him. So at this point in the story, the disciples are blown away. They're like, oh my goodness, they're in hook, line, and sinker. Like their relationship with Jesus is real. It's tangible. It's relevant. For three years, they watched as new life sort of sprung up all around Jesus. And they themselves have experienced this new life as they've followed Jesus around. So Jesus then, at, the, at sort of the midway point in Mark's telling of the story, he stops because something's coming and he wants to prepare them. And he asks them a question. He's like, all of these people have sort of watched and they're beginning to follow along and they're seeing all this new life pop up around me. Who are these people saying that I am? Like, what's happening here? What, what are they recognizing? And they give him a few answers. Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you're one of the prophets. And he's like, I kind of like that. You're on the right track. Like people are sort of getting the right feel. The right buzz is out there. But then he looks them straight in the eye and he says, what about you? Like, you've been up close and personal for all of this stuff. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, this is such a dramatic moment, speaks for the rest of them. And he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. These are all kingly designations, by the way. So he's invoking a whole tradition behind that. Essentially what he's saying is, you are the one that all of Israel has been waiting for for so long. You are the one who has come. You are the one who's going to take back from the Romans the occupied city of Jerusalem, and you're going to make Israel, you're going to turn it, return it to its, to its former glory. And it's going to be fantastic. You are going to be the king. And then Jesus decides to do something great. That's why I love him so much. He goes off the algorithm. He's like, there's this other thing over here that's going to give you perspective 
on all the other stuff you've experienced before. It's this other thing way over here that you didn't know you needed, but soon you will. Right? He's trying to get them ready because the cross is around the corner. And we don't know exactly what he said. We don't know his exact words because Mark doesn't give them to us. Again, parchment's expensive. So he just sort of sums it up. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is a, another kingly, this is a kingly title, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, by his own people, and that the king must be killed. Must be killed. And three days later, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter does what any one of us would do. He took Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. <laughs> the guts that that guy has. He's like, Jesus, this ain't part of the algorithm, man. You're like, you've been doing this thing for, for a lot of years now, and we like it. We want more of that. Please give us more of that. This other thing, dying, that's not how this is supposed to go. Like, this is the craziest thing you've ever said. Like, you're off the reservation here. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, you only think it's crazy because you only have in mind human things. You don't have in mind the things of God. You don't have divine things on the brain right now. And then he begins to explain himself by saying some things that are really foolish. At least they sound really foolish to us. But sometimes the, the things that sound foolish to us They wind up being the very wisdom of God. Listen to what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Oh. Jesus makes it absolutely clear that he's, he's so determined to do what the Father has for him to do that he's willing to stake his life on it. He's willing to give up his life. He's putting it on the line in order to get it done. He is willing to suffer. And if anyone is going to follow Jesus, if anyone is going to follow Jesus, they must take up their cross and follow deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. If anyone wants to fall in line behind Jesus and really follow, they, we, have to be willing to suffer. I want to follow. I really do. I want to show that kind of determination. I really do. I'm assuming you do too. I'm hoping you do too. Here's the problem, and it's an obvious one. We don't like to suffer. We don't want to suffer. 
We don't. In fact, we've created whole worlds for ourselves and try our best to avoid any kind of suffering at all. Like if we think about it, we're thinking about a war over there in Europe, and we're thinking, what if we get sucked into this thing? Well, if that happens, we want our military to be, to be successful, but we don't really want to make any sacrifices ourselves. No, 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 we don't, we don't want to do that. Like, we want, we want more social services. We want better schools. We want greater education. We want really good roads and bridges. But you know what we don't want? We don't want to pay higher taxes. No, 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 that's it. No, that's out of the question. Right. We want to lose weight but we don't want to do the necessary things. We don't want to cut the calories. We don't want to sweat it out on a treadmill or go running outside three times a week for a half an hour, which is pretty low bar. We don't want to do any of that stuff, but we still want to lose weight. We don't want to suffer. If the choice is left up to us, if we're honest about it, more often than not, we're going to do our best to avoid any kind of suffering. We don't want it. We don't like to suffer. We don't like to suffer. But then, on the other hand, we also know that there are certain kinds of suffering that can bring about some really great things. And we could go on and on and on about this. There's like, like a farmer. Farmers right now are getting ready to sow seeds, to plant in the ground, to prepare the ground and do all of that work preparing the ground and then putting the seed in the ground. And then they're going to work really hard come harvest time to harvest that stuff. We know really good things can come from voluntarily suffering, right? We know this. We know that a woman in a delivery room suffering so much brings about new life in the birth of a child. We know this. We know it, right? Or there's, or there's a, a young woman who is staying up late at night, studying her textbooks, studying all of her notes because she wants to get it right because she knows that there's a test the next day and she's going to nail it and she's willing to suffer in order for it to happen. We go on and on about this. There are all kinds of really good things that can come from suffering. So we have this like dual reality before us. On the one hand, we hate it. We don't want to suffer. And on the other hand, we know that there's some really, really good things that come from suffering. So what do we do about that? Well, I think we do. We do what Jesus has been doing with his disciples for like three years up to this point, right? We we, we do what any good athlete does. We do what any good instrumentalist does. What any, we, what any good singer does. We do what any good writer does. What do we do? We practice. Like we drill this into our kids and their instruments and singing and all that stuff. You got to practice. If you want to get better, you got to practice. Yeah. We know this. We need to practice. We actually submit ourselves to voluntary suffering. 
in order to be shaped, in order to be molded, in order to be transformed, in order to put ourselves in the position to become different, better people than we were, better people than we are today. We actually put into the practice the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We practice losing our lives in order to save them. Now, long, long, long ago, the church created this whole entire season called Lent. The church, long time ago, created all of these different practices. We call them spiritual disciplines. That if we would just give ourselves to them and voluntarily suffer, then this will have a benefit for our lives. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about one, one of these spiritual disciplines, right, as it relates to all of this. Have you heard about, have you heard about this discipline of fasting? Of course you have. Like, this is familiar. Like, it's that thing that, that you, it's that time when you, you, like, give up caffeine because you want to show God how much you love God. You're like, God, get a load of this. I'm going to show you, because God is up there somewhere, I'm going to show you how much I love you by giving up caffeine for 40 days. Aren't you impressed? I'm going to give up chocolate, God, for 40 days, because I want you to know how much I love you and how much I'm committed to you and devoted to you. Because this, this, is, this is the way fasting has sort of been, has been presented to us. Show God how much you love God by just giving up something for a period of time. Right? Fast from it, and you'll prove to God your devotion. Oh my goodness, no! That's not what fasting is. Uh-uh. Let's stop that silliness. Let's stop that nonsense. That's not what this is about. That's not what the discipline of fasting was designed for. It is so much deeper than that. Can I talk to you a little bit about fasting? Because I think this is absolutely fascinating and awesome. So fasting is an exercise in voluntary suffering. Like, it's an exercise in self-control. It helps us answer questions. How much am I willing to give up? How much am I willing, how far am I willing to voluntarily suffer so that I can actually be shaped and molded so that my life will be different at the end of it? Here's how it works you lose your life by fasting, you give up for a period of time that which gives you life. You're voluntarily suffering. And your intent through fasting is to train yourself to gain life by doing so. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Like you're going to give up the thing that gives you life in order to train yourself to gain life? What? That's what Jesus said. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Sounds foolish, doesn't it? Here's how it works. If you're paying attention, this actually works. Here's an example. So maybe you've noticed that after you haven't eaten for a while, you've skipped a meal or two, and you're really hungry, and you get to the point where, 
where you sort of get angry about the smallest of things. Or, or like you get, you get irritated at the littlest things or your fuse is really short. And you think to yourself, oh, of course, I haven't eaten. I haven't eaten in like four or five hours or in six hours or I missed lunch. Of course, I'm hungry. And we blame it on the fact that we've missed a meal. Right? Have you all been there? You're like, I haven't eaten. I'm mad. I'm irritated. Right? But here's the thing. Once you stop fasting, you begin to notice that there are other times when you get angry. There are other times when you get irritated. There are other times when your fuse is really short, even when you're not hungry. Even when your belly is full. Do you know what that means? It means that we can't blame that stuff on being hungry. It means that anger is just in our own hearts. It means that, that our propensity to get irritated at the smallest of things, it's just in here. It means that that short fuse it's not hunger's fault. It's just part of who we are. And when we're fasting, we become more aware of these things because those things get heightened. And while we're fasting, we begin to, we begin to pay attention to those things more often because it comes up more often. And we begin to learn while we're fasting how to control them so that even when we're not fasting, we recognize that these things are just in us, and when they pop up, we've got nothing to blame it on. And we become more aware of these things that are inside of us, and we gain the ability to control them. That's a whole lot different than, I'm going to give up caffeine for 40 days to show you how much I love you. No, no, no. This is engaging in something that will actually transform you. It's engaging in a kind of voluntary suffering that will shape you and mold you and change you and transform you and bring about something good, something great. You'll become more and more the kind of person who lives and loves like Jesus. Now, that's something I could get up for. That seems worth it to me. So putting into practice the words of Jesus. Right? Losing our lives for the sake of the kingdom. When we put those practice, when we practice this way of living through spiritual disciplines like fasting, I invite you to find a book on the spiritual disciplines. Fasting, fixed hour prayer, solitude, study. There's a whole bunch of them and you begin to live out those words in your life, if we do these kinds of things intentionally, it changes us. If we go through voluntary suffering, you're transformed. You're new. You're more like Jesus. Think about all of the stories that we read about Jesus in the Bible. Think about them. What is he constantly doing? He's losing his life constantly. It's how he lived his life. He was constantly giving his life 
away. He just saw the world differently than most of us do. He noticed the people in this world who were in the greatest need, the most need. And what did he do? He gave his life away to them, for them. He healed them, fed them, forgave them, accepted them, welcomed them, put their lives back together again. Wouldn't you like to be that kind of person? Friends, all it takes is what? Practice. We're talking about practice. Little Alan Iverson reference there for those of you who don't know. We are talking about practice. Because practice is so important. Right? Look, when we as a community gathered together at the bridge home and we did some yard work out there, right? And then we had we had people on the inside cleaning parts of the kitchen and part of the inside, and we had some of our littlest ones watching, washing windows. This is why we bring our kids along. This is why there's no age limit. Like, we bring our kids along to do stuff like this because they need to be, they need to be learning this stuff. But here's the deal. We're not just helping them out. We are helping them out, absolutely, doing great work. But when we're practicing losing our lives... And then when we went there on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas, and we cleaned those apartments, we're not just helping them out. In the process, we are becoming different people. We are being transformed. We are engaging in the discipline of service and generosity. And in the process, we are learning to be others-oriented and generous people. And soon, it just becomes natural. We begin doing these things in other places in our lives. When we gather together on Sunday evenings and we're listening to perspectives that are new to us, we are giving up our privilege and we are privileging the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. And we are putting ourselves in the humble position of learning and in the process, we are being hospitable to voices that we've never listened to before. And in the process, we are being transformed into people who are just becoming more hospitable and gracious. These aren't just things that we're doing willy-nilly. These things are actually shaping us. Because when we engage in things like voluntary suffering... We know some really good and great things happen. And we know, according to Jesus, that our lives will be saved. We'll be changed. We'll be healed. That word saved isn't just, you're going to go to heaven one day. It has a whole range of meaning. One of them is healed. If you want to be healed, if you want your life to be whole, Voluntary suffer, voluntarily suffer for the benefit of others and you yourself will be made whole. It sounds so foolish, but it's the very wisdom of God. So, here we have some ultimate questions for us. Do we want to follow Jesus? Do we? If we do, what kind of follower will we be? Followers who sort of sit back and avoid all sorts of suffering at all costs. Followers who believe that those really were the craziest words that Jesus ever said. You're crazy, Jesus. That's not part of the algorithm. No, it's a new algorithm. It's the Jesus algorithm. 
Or will we be followers that, that decide that what, what might sound foolish to us might actually be the very wisdom of God? Followers who decide that we're actually willing to suffer alongside of Jesus and alongside of those in this world who are suffering the most to benefit the larger human community. I can't answer that question for you. What kind of follower do you want to be? Let's pray.